Uh, good morning. Welcome to Potomac Hills Presbyterian Church. I'm Frank. Um, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you're new, I'm glad that you're here. I uh, hope you'll stick around long enough afterwards uh, for us to, for me or one of the other uh, elders or uh, Dave to, to greet you. Uh, we'd love to get to know you a little bit. Now let's turn our attention to the Word of God this morning. If you'd open your Bibles to Mark chapter 6, verses 45 to 56, we're at the end of Mark 6. When you get there, uh, you'll see that we have a, fat, a famous passage this morning about Jesus walking on the water. And then you'll see that we have a completely non-famous passage about Jesus healing the sick at Genesaret. But if you stick with me, uh, hopefully the whole sermon, uh, you'll see that we actually find our hope, our comfort, and uh, God's faithfulness, graciousness, and mercy actually in that non-famous passage rather than uh, the famous passage about uh, Jesus walking on the water. So let us read now Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Genesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region, began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever he, uh, they heard he was. And, when, and wherever he came, in, cities, or in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as were touched, uh, as many as touched it were made well. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you uh, for this passage. We thank you for the fact that it reveals to us that we are stuck in our own way. That we are stuck in our sinful earthly mindsets. And that you have come to free us uh, from all of that. That we might see as you do. Lord, we pray that this morning we would, be, uh, we would see your gospel, that we would see the triumph that we have in you and the freedom that we have in you. Lord, would you speak loudly through me this morning that we might hear of your goodness and of your grace. Lord, bless this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, this is probably my seventh introduction that I came up with, and then I described decide to like scrap all seven and return to the original one that I wrote. So uh, this is the original one that I wrote. Um, I was watching a recent, the most recent installment of Mission Impossible. Uh, it was, I love Mission Impossible movies. They're hilarious uh, because they're ridiculous and you're like, really? That happened? Really? Um, but the scene sort of starts with a shootout uh, between Tom Cruise and the bad guys. 
right? And the bad guy is getting away, but not before one of Tom Cruise's team puts a tracker in his neck, of course, because, you know, that's what you do when you're on Tom Cruise's team. You put trackers in people, right? And so, of course, the shootout inevitably ends in Tom Cruise's favor, of course, um, and he goes sprinting after the bad guy to chase him down. Now, you've got Tom sort of sprinting through buildings on rooftops, being chased by bad guy reinforcements, and you've got the rest of his team, because of course you have to separate Tom to take on the whole, the entirety of all the bad guys. Um, the rest of the team is sort of following anxiously in the van, sort of watching Tom, who also has a tracking uh, sort of chip in his neck, because of course, right? They're watching on an iPad, just sort of watching sort of map view where like the two guys are and trying to direct him how to go. And one of the funniest scenes is Tom is running through this office uh, sort of office sort of space with lots of confused workers when Benji, his teammate, shouts, go left. And he skids to a stop and looks, and all he sees is a window, like a several-story drop, and then a rooftop extending out in front of him. And he says, go left? Yes. Right now? Yes. And Tom is wildly confused, right? And so he does the natural Tom Cruise thing to do. He grabs a chair, spins it around, throws it through the window, shatters the window, climbs up onto the window still, and starts stealing himself for this giant drop that he's going to take, right? And he hesitates. And Benji, who can't see any of this, is like, what are you waiting for? He's getting away. Let's go. What are you waiting for? And Tom shouts, I'm jumping out a window. Benji, what? I'm jumping out a window. And then the camera cuts to Benji, who's in the van, and he realizes that he's been watching it on 2D, right, from the top down, and he switches it to 3D to see sort of the jump that he has to take, and he says, oh, good luck. <laughs> now, this is really funny because of the differences in perspectives between Tom and Benji, right? Tom can't see where he's supposed to be going, while Benji can't seem to work on iPad um, and sort of see what's happening in real life because he's stuck in 2D mode, right? But it's even funnier when we think about the perspective of those office workers, right? You're, so, you're just sort of doing your thing, anonymous office worker, sort of typing, and then suddenly a guy comes sprinting into your office and then he skids to a stop for like no apparent reason, looks out, starts shouting, left, left? grabs a chair, throws it through the window, climbs up, and then starts shouting, I'm about to jump out of a window. I'm jumping out of a window. And you're like, yes, you are jumping. I don't understand, because what, what, what are they missing? They're missing, of course, the earpiece and the conversation, right? And so what we're, we're seeing is we're seeing sort of the, the differences in perspectives, that understanding doesn't come until you see the whole perspective, right? And often, when you're stuck in your own perspective, you don't get it and you miss big things until somebody shows you the whole thing, right? And it's only funny for us because we get to see every single angle. And we, un and we understand sort of intrinsically through our own experiences what it's like to try to understand something when you don't have all the pieces, Okay, and so that's exactly what we see here in Mark 6. This, mo this morning, we're actually going to be focusing on that famous passage, primarily, verses 45 to 52. But again, we're going to find our comfort, our hope, uh, in verses 53 to 56. So in verses 45 to 52, 
we're going to sort of structure our time by looking at the three characters and their perspectives and their paradigms in this passage. And so first we're going to look at the crowd, and then we're going to look at the disciples, and then finally we're going to look at Jesus. And really, we could sort of group the disciples and the crowd together as they're stuck in earthly paradigms. And Jesus is sort of in a category of his own, um, looking, through thing, looking at things from a heavenly perspective. So let's start with the crowd. Look with me first at verse 45. Immediately, he, came, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. Now, it's interesting the language that is used here. The word made actually conveys a meaning of compel. So basically, after the feeding of the 5,000, which sort of immediately precedes the passage that we're in, Jesus forces the disciples to get into the boat. And you can imagine sort of Jesus herding his disciples and forcing, hey, Peter, get over here. Like, you know, getting into the boat and then sort of kicking them offshore to send them on their way charging them to go to Bethsaida. But the real question is why? Why does Jesus abruptly send the disciples away? I mean, think about it. They were in the middle of doing some vibrant, impactful ministry, right? I mean, the reason why they were feeding the 5,000 in the first place was because Jesus was doing so much teaching that he ran sort of overtime, which is something that I do a lot that hopefully won't happen this morning, right? But he ran overtime and it sort of bled into dinner time. And so he had to feed everybody. Well, he, well, he didn't, I guess he didn't have to, but he did, right? And so what better time to do ministry and to stay than hot on the heels of a miracle like that? So the, we sort of are wondering why he kicks them out. And we find the reason if we turn to the parallel passage in John 6. There John records in verse 15 that perceiving then that they, which is the crowd, were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And so we can actually see sort of with the context of John 6 that Jesus is reacting to the crowd uh, and what they're gearing up to do. They're seeking to make Jesus king, and Jesus wants no part of that. At least, he doesn't want to be the king that way, okay, that kind of king. And he also doesn't want his sort of disciples to get caught up in this sort of nationalistic fervor of, hey, we're going to have a military political leader now. And so Jesus removes them and sends them on their way but we can sort of look a little bit more closely at what the crowd is thinking, right? It's not just that they want to make him king. Well, what does that mean? Remember what happened last week in last week's passage. The crowd had just feasted on food that had been miraculously multiplied by Jesus. Their bellies were full, and they were all pretty excited about this guy that could do some crazy things like feed 5,000 people from a few loaves and a couple of fish. And again, if we look at John 6, we can sort of see what they're thinking. Just the verse before the one I read, verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, which is the loaves, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. And this is why they plan to force Jesus to be their king. They're thinking, finally, the prophet that has been foretold is here. 
And in their understanding, in their paradigm, they thought that the coming of the prophet would mean that God would rise up and deliver them from their enemies, a la sort of Exodus, Judges, any of the other myriad of times that they had fallen away and the Lord had judged them and sent oppressors and then delivered them from said oppressors, right? And so now it is time for some physical aid from God, right? Let's destroy the hated Romans and it's going to be awesome. And in their mind, it's the return to the glory days of the United Monarchy, right, under David and Solomon, when there was great wealth and acclaim lavished upon the Jews. And in short, they expect for God to put them back on top. And why? Because they're God's people. I'm God's people. I should be on top because God should be on top and so I should be on top, right? That's the sort of line of thinking. And so they're looking to be delivered totally and finally from their ungodly oppressors. But really, they're not looking to be God's people. They're not looking to be God's people. They're really just looking for the perks of being God's people. They're looking for the material comfort, the reputation, the power that comes with being on top. And really, all of the excitement around Jesus isn't even for the person of Jesus. For John 6, 25, a little later says, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, not because you understand what those signs mean, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In the, in the end, their excitement is because they were full for maybe the first time in a long time. I mean, if somebody feeds me a really great meal and I'm full, I tend to be pretty pleased with them and pretty excited about who they are in my life. And I'm like, yes, food, okay? But what's really ironic about this, what's really ironic about the move to make Jesus their political and military leader after the um, miraculous feeding is that what comes right before that feeding? Jesus was teaching them, of course. And so... What is he teaching them on? We don't really get sort of the content of what Jesus is teaching, but the crowd must have been listening carefully, sort of enraptured with this awesome figure of Jesus because he's like the best teacher ever, right? And they're learning much and having their minds blown and their paradigm shattered. And so maybe they thought heavenly for a little while, but then they eat miraculously, and they easily and happily revert back to their old paradigms and their old expectations. Isn't it ironic, right? That they go back to the very thing that Jesus had just taught them not to do, right? Just taught them on to sort of shatter their paradigms. And really, that's the power of paradigms. That's the, really the power of the way in which we think. We can really be imprisoned by our paradigms. They sort of refuse to let us see something radically different from our norms, from the way that we think that things ought to be. And so the crowd is stuck in their earthly ways, sort of excited about an earthly deliverance. And it's not like Jesus doesn't want to deliver his people it's not that Jesus doesn't want to give them all that they desire to deliver them from their suffering. It's just that Jesus is not content with earthly de deliverance. He's concerned not only with our earthly deliverance, but also our cosmic and eternal deliverance. 
And so the real enemy isn't the one that is before us, bullying and oppressing us. The real enemy isn't poverty, sickness, disease, brokenness in our relationships, you name it. The real enemy is death, which results from sin. That enemy wins 100% of the time, condemning us to an eternity of wrath. And so Jesus doesn't give in. Jesus doesn't give them what they want because if we jump over to Mark 8, 36, we'd see that Jesus sums it up this way. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And so when we look in a heavenly perspective, what is the balance that we see? Of course, Jesus is concerned far more with the cosmic eternal things because those things are eternal and they are much bigger. And so what do we see? We see the, the, the crowd can't see past their present circumstances. They can't get past their hope that their present lives could change. In short, they don't have a long-term perspective. They're playing the short game instead of the long one. But what about the disciples? What about the disciples? Well, we mostly find the disciples on the sea in this passage. They've been sort of kicked out, um, and been given a mission by their master to go to Bethsaida, and they've labored long and hard in that commitment to accomplish this mission. They're obeying Jesus' command, and that's good, right? And so the task, remember, they're given a task by their master, and they're committed to completing that task. And so the task itself should have been a constant reminder about their master, right? It should have been a constant reminder uh, to have Jesus' perspective because Jesus is really at the center of where they're at, right? Je Jesus is the very reason why they're in the situation that they're in, and so how's it going? Look at verse 48. And he saw, that's Jesus looking down from the mountain as he's praying, he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them, and about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And so what do we see? What's the, what's the picture that is painted by, the, by the, the Bible? Here we have a band of believers exhausted from a whole day's worth of ministry and work, faithfully obeying Jesus' commands to them. It's a good start. And when we look at Matthew's account, we can see that the waves are battering the boat, and John's account says that they've the winds are so bad and so against them that they've given up trying to sail it all and they've pulled out the oars. And so they're tired and uh, remember they were supposed to have a break before the whole teaching, before the whole like eating of the miraculous bread. And so they're tired to begin with and they do a whole day's worth of ministry and then they're kicked out to go sail and now they're rowing after like maybe two days of really hard labor and no break at all. And remember, what time does Jesus arrive and come down to them? It's the fourth watch of the night, which means it's between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. And so literally, they have been rowing all night. I get on a rowing machine, and I'm done in five minutes. Like, my back is screaming at me. I'm very miserable. I'm sweating up a storm. I'm super out of shape, and I don't want to do any more. And these guys have been rowing for like six, seven, eight, nine hours after a long day's worth of work, right? And, not real, and they're probably a little confused, too, because they're like, Jesus, like, why'd you kick us out? And so it's wet. 
It's cold, it's windy, it's miserable, and they're exhausted. And so what's going through their heads? Were there silent doubts? Maybe, uh, this stinks. If Jesus hadn't kicked us out of the party with the loaves, I mean, it was great. I'd be sleeping in, the be- in like a comfortable bed in some hospitable crowd member's house. This would have been awesome. Or maybe it was a, I've been rowing all night. Can't we just call it quits and just go back to shore? Or maybe it's a more aggressive, like passive aggressive thing in your own head of like, what is Jesus doing? It feels like he just abandoned us. Like, why is he not here? Also, how is he going to get where we are? I don't understand how this is going to work, right? Or maybe there was a quiet resolve to do everything in their power to accomplish what Jesus had set, us out, set them out to do. I'm just going to do this. I'm just going to row. It's going to be great. I'm just going to obey. What we do know is that Jesus, uh, that Jesus' disciples were not expecting Jesus to show up. This is why they don't recognize him in verses 49 to 50. They think he's a ghost. They can see him plainly, but verse 52 says that their hearts were hard. And this means that they didn't have any room in their paradigm for him to be walking on the water. That they didn't, in their sort of way of thinking of things, there was no possible way that this could be Jesus to come to them in their hour of need, in their hour of suffering, in their hour of laboring away. And so really, the truth of his divinity, as well as the truth of his care for them, hadn't really truly sunk in. And so their reaction of being utterly astounded isn't simply a sort of wondering at Jesus' power, like, wow, that's Jesus' power. But there's an element of surprise as well, an element of that was unexpected. And so R.C. Sproul describes the reaction as being dumbfounded. They can't wrap their brains around it. And so, I mean, sure, you'd expect them to say, wow. I mean, Jesus did calm the storm without even a word this time. The first time he had to say something. The second time he just sort of gets in the boat and it's calm. But you'd also expect them to sort of say by this point, well, that's Jesus for you. (laughs) He's the son of God after all. That's totally in line with who he is. That isn't out of character at all for him. I totally expect something like this to happen. It's still crazy awesome, but yeah, you know, that's God. That's Jesus. But rather, they're, they're surprised. They're surprised. And so, you know, Jesus' divinity after the fact, after he gets into the boat, is pretty clear. It's pretty obvious. And so what do they, you expect them to do? You expect them to worship, and that's what they do. Mark 14 records that the disciples worship Jesus after he gets into the boat. But they should have been worshiping Jesus the whole way through. The, the disciples really should have been, if they were thinking in, a heavenly, in sort of a heavenly perspective, they should have been expectant. They should have been ready. They should have been praying while they rode, asking Jesus to help them in the midst of the storm. Remember, this isn't the first storm that they've been in. This is the second. And they've seen Jesus do some crazy things with the storm. They should have been asking Jesus for help, but they're, they're not. And verse 52 makes that clear. They don't understand about the loaves. They don't truly understand that Jesus is for them. Um, Jesus' divinity is not just his divinity, but it's for them. It's for to provide for them, to care for them. They don't even get it when they see him walking on the water, right? And Jesus 
isn't simply displaying his power by just sort of walking on the water. The, the account can be a little confusing because it says he meant to pass by them, but he's meaning to pass by them so that they might see him, that his divinity might be clear as he comes to them. And so why is he out there on the water? He's there for them, right? He's coming to help them. And so Jesus is breaking out of their paradigm and blowing their mind, only it should have never been blown in the first place, which shows us that the disciples are stuck back in their earthly paradigms, even as they labor obediently on the mission. And, you know, we might be able to understand that the crowd doesn't get it, right? We might be able to chalk the crowd sort of backsliding up to uh, their lack of time with Jesus, but we really can't do that with the disciples. They were with him the whole time. They saw everything, all the miracles, all the healings, all the feedings, all the teachings, and yet they seem to be just as imprisoned as the crowd is. I mean, they don't even get to use the line that we, used to, we get to use, that we often use. If only I was there to see the miracles, to see Jesus, I definitely would have a stronger faith, right? If only I could see. Well, they did see, and they could see, right? And they still don't seem to get it. And, well, what about Peter, you might say? That Peter that was probably hanging out and you know, had to be dragged into the boat, right? Didn't he get out of the boat in Mark 14, or Matthew 14? Didn't he have faith and understanding and a heavenly way of thinking? Well, yes, he did. For a time, right? Because then what did he do? After he did well, what did he do? He looked around, and he got caught up in the earthly wind and the waves, and then he started to sink. And so he had it, and then he lost it. And then hopefully he had it again. And then he loses it again, and then he has it again, and he loses it again. And that feels like the sort of life that we have, that we backslide constantly. And no matter how you slice it, the disciples and us, we just seem to always get stuck stuck back in our earthly way of thinking of things. And in some ways, that lack of faith and understanding in the disciples is worse than the crowds. Their being stuck in earthly paradigms makes us wonder what hope it, there is for anyone. If they could see everything, if those are the ones that the church is built on, what hope is, for, what hope is there for us 2,000 years in the future to, to hold on to that heavenly perspective? And the answer, of course, is always going to be Jesus, right? Which brings us to Jesus. Well, what about Jesus? We see here that after Jesus dismisses the crowds, he withdrew to the top of the mountain to pray. And it's here that I think we see how to transition from an earthly paradigm and perspective to a heavenly one. And so why does Jesus withdraw to pray? Jesus prayed all the time, right? But we see him withdrawing to pray in in times of particular stress or importance. Think of the Garden of Gethsemane as he prepares to receive all the wrath for every person, past, present, and future that he's going to save. But why? I mean, he's Jesus. He never wavers. He never forgets. He's always, he always knows who he is, and he's always on his mission. So what's the point of praying? It's because Jesus doesn't say that the worldly cares that we have are nothing or insignificant. 
He recognizes that holding on to an earthly or holding on to a heavenly perspective is hard. That in fact his whole mission is hard. And Jesus is reminding himself of that heavenly perspective by communing with the Father. That he is strengthening himself for what he is going to do. Why? Because it is in fact hard. And so Jesus is spending time with the Father so that he can be reminded and strengthened for what he is about to do. It's important we see this vital truth. When Jesus heals people, when he feeds people, when he weeps over the dead, the fact that he does all of that shows that this life that we're living, with all of its sufferings, all of its hurts, all of its worries, all of its sinfulness, all of it, it matters. But it's not everything. That's the truth that we need to grasp on, uh, hold, hold on to, that it matters, that it's important, but it's not everything. And so think about it this way. There's something big that is in your life that has just happened. Students, maybe you've just failed a test or a paper. Uh, young adults, maybe you've just gotten into your first car accident and it's all your fault. I did that once, I ran a red, it was bad, okay? Adults that own houses, maybe your water heater just died and it started leaking everywhere, and you don't have water until it gets replaced. Talked to John yesterday, apparently his water heater died. It was really fortuitous, actually, really providential, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but whatever happens, right, it's right there in front of your face. And it really just sort of seems to stick with you. You can't get away from it. It's hard to focus on other things because that thing, that big thing that happened just keeps popping up. And yes, what happened is important, right? It's important, you're gonna have to take the necessary steps, appropriate steps to resolve it, but it's not everything. You've still got family to take care of, jobs to deal with, food to put on the table. There's a whole host of other things that need to happen. There's more to life than your water heater. There's more to life than your failed test. There's more to life than your car accident. It's important, but it's not everything. And that's what Jesus is taking time to remind himself of. Can you imagine being Jesus with his heart of compassion and love for the people? The weight and urgency of their suffering and neediness must have been overwhelming and ever-present in his daily life. He looks at you and he can see all the things that are wrong and he wants to help you. It's his heart, it's his desire to help you. And he has to sort of keep that in the proper perspective. Those desires of his, he has to keep in the proper perspective. And let's not forget the incredibly frustrating nature of dealing with broken sinners. As he teaches us, we seem to just sort of in one ear, out the other. And he has to deal with all of those feelings as well. And it's work. It is, in fact, work to put things in their proper perspective. There would have been a very real pull for Jesus to focus on, his pres on the present suffering that is right there in front of him. But, of course, when compared to an eternity of wrath, what is suffering in this time? When compared to eternity, what is more important? Of course, eternity is more important. And this is the hard work that Jesus has to do because it requires him to say not yet and not in that way to the suffering and neediness around him. And so he manages that work, and it is work, right? He manages that work by spending time in the presence of his Father. 
And God's presence does wonders for perspective. Simply being in his presence puts everything and everyone in their place. It cuts through all the noise to deliver what the truth is about every single little thing. And so being on that side of the cross, being with the Father reminds and steals Jesus for his mission. And so what does Jesus end up doing with these differences in perspective? Remember, the crowd and the disciples and us, we are all still stuck in our earthly ways, paradigms, and perspectives. Well, remember when I said at the beginning um, that we would find our hope and our comfort in that non-famous passage? We're going to find his faithful persistence there in that non-famous passage. So let's go to verses 53 to 56. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Genesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people to their beds, uh, on their beds, to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. And here's why we find our comfort here. Remember, the crowd, the disciples, and we just don't get it. They, we, don't, we frustratingly don't get it. And Jesus could have left them and us behind shaken the dust off his sandals, and been done with us. But he doesn't. And that right there is our hope and our comfort. And so what does Jesus do? He doesn't leave the disciples to struggle alone on the sea. He comes to them, showing off yet again who he is, even though they don't seem to get it. And he doesn't leave the crowd either. He goes to them, those sort of frustrating, fickle people, and he continues to give them himself, healing them and meeting them right where they are. The very fact that Jesus sort of continues on a sort of nondescript healing sort of spree shows his patience with those whom he loves. He doesn't let go. He just keeps showing up and revealing who he is. He keeps giving people that can't seem to get it more chances to see the glorious grace that's coming. And what a comfort that is to us, right? We tend to go through our weeks consumed with the cares and worries of this world, and we backslide with the best of them. And yet the Lord doesn't leave us alone. He comes after us, faithfully calling us to himself. And the gospel doesn't just comfort and reassure us in our stuckness, in our bondage, in our imprisonment to our earthly paradigms. The gospel doesn't just sort of comfort us. It changes us and reorients us too. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4. Describe how the gospel reorients our perspective, starting in verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. Here, listen carefully. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. There's the move, right? We've heard the gospel that he is going to raise us again with Jesus, and then here's the, here's the transition, the change. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction, it is in 
It is an affliction. It hurts. It is important. But it is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Do you hear how the gospel changes the way that we experience things? Do you see that we're not dismissing the here and now, but looking to him to raise us while we are in the here and now? But it's not just that he raises us, but he brings us into his presence. Did you catch that? He brings us into his presence. And so I tell my youth group that the gospel is three things. Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, and our union with him. And so Christ's death and resurrection are good and all. But it's not good news for me until I'm united with him, until I'm in his very presence, one with him. Because when I'm one with him, everything changes. It changes everything about who I am and how I see things. Because now I'm no longer stuck in my earthly perspectives, my earthly paradigms, because I have died to them. I have died with Christ and I no longer live. He and I are one, and so I've been raised with him in newness of life. And now, in newness of life, I get to see as he does. I get to love the things that he loves in the order that he loves them. And that's how the gospel moves us from an earthly perspective to a heavenly one, by bringing us into his presence through our union with him. And so let's end our time by asking what this looks like in real life. What does this look like in the life of somebody sort of just going through life? And so let me tell you about my week. Sermon weeks are really interesting because the Lord tends to make you live through what you're preaching on. Dr. Dave told me once he preached through adversity. You can guess what happened, right? He got a lot of adversity. It was crazy. And I don't think he's preached on adversity since, okay? Well, this week is all about perspective, right? And so how do you think my week went? The Lord revealed to me just how stuck I can be and how freeing the gospel can be at the same time. And so Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, terrible, right? I didn't get much done on the sermon. Sarah was sick on Monday. Didn't really get much done. A little bit. All-day Presbyterian meeting on Tuesday with a late night attached due to the session prayer meeting that we do every, every month. And Wednesday was a prep for youth group. So come Thursday, I've got zilch, and I'm freaking out, right? Because it's, it's like that paper that you know that you have a deadline for, and it just sort of gets worse and worse and worse as you get, get going. And now I'm like, it's Thursday, and I have nothing. This is not good, right? And of course, like I said at the beginning, I've scrapped six introductions. So it's not like I haven't tried, right? They're just not good. And so isn't it ironic that the sermon on perspective is in fact my biggest stumbling block to having a heavenly perspective? But the sermon, of course, isn't the only thing that's sort of pulling me from a heavenly perspective towards a per- to only looking at my circumstances. There were some unusual things that happened too. And like, there, like this, this congregation, you guys have heard me do some really stupid things, right? Not being able to spell bed, right? Like just... Like, it's just bad, right? Well, Monday, this is, this is really the kicker. Monday, I'm in, in Wegmans. I'm, I've got a shopping cart in front of me. And I drop my phone. 
So I stoop down to pick it up, and what do I do? I smash my face onto the handle of the, the shopping cart. Like, and it was not like a, like a love tap. It was like a full-on smashing of my face where somebody was coming the other way, saw the whole thing. It was very embarrassing, right? And like, I, like my face is on fire. I feel like I've broken my face into a million pieces, have two giant black eyes. I'm like, this is going to be great to preach on Sunday with two black eyes, right? And I have a low-grade headache, and that, that's just weird. Stuff like that, you know, you're like... Well, okay. And then also, of course, on Monday, as you can see, I have a brace on my hand. Why? Because my wrist just started hurting. And like, it's painful to do like things like brushing my teeth. And I'm like, Lord, seriously? On this week? I've got to think about this and my face. I mean, my face is painful to look at to begin with, but like now it's just painful for me too, right? And then, of course, Wednesday, youth group. Youth group is lovely. I love youth group. You guys are awesome. But youth group was a disaster too. Let's be honest, okay? I was not on my, on my game. Um, I was not communicating well. I was not teaching well. I was a bit of a jerk, okay? I got frustrated. I was a jerk. I needed to repent. It was bad, okay? And so at the end of the day on Wednesday, how am I feeling? Face hurts. Wrist hurts. Have nothing for my sermon. And I've just been like the worst youth pastor of all time. Because not only have I not taught well, but I've also taken it out on the youth group and been a jerk. And so, what's my perspective? I'm throwing a Frank Stinks party on Wednesday night after youth group. That's where I am. I am stuck. I know that I'm on tilt, right? But I'm stuck. I can't get out of it. All I can think of is, Frank, you stink. Frank, you stink. Frank, you stink. That's all I can think of. Even though I'm, I'm like, Frank, perspective sermon. Perspective, think about it. I'm stuck. And so what do I do? I call on one of my best friends to set me straight. Why? Because I know he'll, he'll preach me the gospel. To call me back to a gospel paradigm. And so what do we do? We talk through the sermon, of course, because that makes sense. We talked about perspective. We talked about fixing our eyes on Christ. We talked about having a heavenly perspective. And it really helped when we finally got to the point where we talked about what Jesus thought of me in the here and now. He encouraged me to sit and meditate on what it means to be found in Christ, what it means to be united in Christ right then and right there. Jesus doesn't think of me as a bumbling klutz who's a jerk and a terrible teacher and who can't get a sermon started, he delights in me. I am his beloved. I'm sure that I'm wildly frustrating, but just as he is faithful to the crowd and to the disciples, he is faithful to me too. And so something really changed Wednesday night. Sure, I still struggled on Thursday, didn't get much done, but something had changed. The various pains in my face and my wrist and the worries of, hey, I'm going to need to preach on Sunday, didn't really stick anymore. Jesus had really captured my attention, had captured my heart, had enraptured my attention, like just everything, right? He was captivating. And so you see, Friday and Saturday, I was really excited to come before you this morning to tell you about all the ways in which the Lord had changed my perspective because of the gospel. He had reminded me that the words of my sermon don't do the work of transformation. He does. 
He takes care of that, and in some ways, he already has. He has changed my worries, my stresses, my cares into an expectant joy that celebrates and shares all that he has done for me in the gospel, the good and the bad. And so we'll end where I, end, where, where I just sort of got stuck in a heavenly perspective. Romans, the end of Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? For God, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. And so who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, and we can add to it, can a sermon, can face breaking, can any of that separate us from the love of Christ? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And Paul emphatically says, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a gospel perspective that can get me through the daily grind. That's a gospel perspective perspective that can get us all through a daily grind, through good weeks, through bad weeks, and it's him, in him, that we find our rest and our comfort. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful that in the midst of our backsliding, in the midst of our focusing on our circumstances, our earthly things, Lord, that you do not leave us alone that in fact we are not our own, but we find our only comfort in life and death in the fact that you have claimed us to be yours, that we are in your presence in Christ Jesus, that we are one with you, and because we are one, we are no longer the same. Lord, we pray this morning that this table, this supper that we are going to go to soon, would be a reminder of just that, that we are indeed in your presence always, for we are one with you, that you have given us your Holy Spirit, and so we are never alone. Lord, would you increase in our hearts, and would we decrease, that we might see more like you, that we would love the things that you love in the order that you love them. Lord, help us and remind us that, in fact, you do love us, and that you have already changed us, for we are new in you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.